You can turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. In Nehemiah chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 15 through chapter 7, verse 4. It's kind of a break there by the chapters that doesn't reflect really the, the break in, um, in content. So, as you're turning there, uh, I have kind of one good ear. Uh, one ear that I, I, I uh, have maybe lost about 50% of uh, hearing in. And that, that's an advantage when I'm trying to sleep. Right? I can lay down on my good ear with the, my good ear against the pillow, and it's like I have earplugs in. Um, it, that's kind of nice. But on occasions like this where I have my good ear um, to this window, there's this little rattling that takes place in this window and I, I think the tape fell off at some point and I just need to I need to take some time to fix it but that rattling just I hear it every time like the door opens and every time uh, the music is going and you hear the speakers right and there's sound waves taking place this this rattling is just going on in the background um, some of you were a part of the church when we were on Toll House and you recall the one of the more distracting times when we were out in the front in the parking lot right? the state had asked us to worship outside and so we did so until the fires made it unbearable with the smoke but we were outside for several weeks and and I know from my own experience and from looking upon the people who were oftentimes looking elsewhere uh, while I was preaching that it was a very distracting setting the context for a worship service uh, can be distracting, right? A distracting setting actually disrupts worship. There's really not a generation that's been free from distractions. I think we oftentimes highlight the fact that, you know, technology has, has just given us so much constant noise and, and distraction, and there's some truth to that for sure. Uh, we're constantly fighting to, uh, to not feel like we're, we're missing out on everything that's happening in the world um, and, and, and so we, we allow these distractions to, to take root and, and to, to completely lose sight of, of our purpose. Um, but every generation has, has sort of writing about not being distracted. It has references to, to not losing sight of, of the purpose for which you're here. And so what I want to say is that the goal is that our attention would be arrested by God's word so that all distractions would disappear. That's really the goal when we gather together, when we, we gather for worship, that we would not have our minds wandering so much by every possible distraction, but that God's word would be the center of our focus. And regardless of the various distractions that you face this morning, which I'm sure are many, as they are for me as well. Regardless of that, this passage in Nehemiah teaches us to cherish what is ultimate and what is eternal. Too often we obsess trying to eliminate every possible distraction, to fix every rattling window, right? to, get, to get rid of every little thing that, that, that catches our attention and, and pulls us away from worship. We focus on on all of those little details so that we miss the whole point of giving our undivided hearts to God. 
Right? We're to offer ourselves wholly to the Lord. And, and out of a desire to do that, we think, well, let me just focus on getting rid of every little thing that captures my mind and imagination right now. Let me just remove it. It's sort of like telling ourselves to stop thinking about the pink elephant. You just, there's almost, it's almost pointless to tell yourself that. And the, the best way, the secret, is not to remove what you don't want, but to emphasize what you do, which is more of God. When you fill your mind with things that are good and pleasant and lovely and wholesome, you don't have room for the distractions. So previously, we learned in Nehemiah that he had some external opposition, right? And, and that external opposition was relentless, and it continued to push against the purposes that Nehemiah was trying to accomplish, which was the completion of the walls in Jerusalem. And that external opposition had also secured some internal support so that even the priesthood was involved in some of their false intentions, as we said, the false accusations and the false machinations. And I, I pr pronounced that wrong last week. I, I looked it up and found out how to pronounce it properly. False machinations, which is just plotting against Nehemiah and his purposes. We'll see some of that continue as we look at the opposition that is ongoing. Right? We'll see the reactions to the wall being complete. And those reactions reveal that the, that the opposition that Nehemiah faced is, is continuing. He, 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 he didn't like finish the wall and then everyone said, oh, I guess we failed. All right, well, we'll let them have their city. We'll let them have their way. We'll let them do what they want. No, that opposition continues to be relentless. And so we can allow ourselves to be distracted by ongoing opposition. Or we can cultivate an indistractable reverence for God. That's our goal this morning. So let's ask the Lord for his help in accomplishing that. Heavenly Father, we know that we cannot simply manufacture the right mindset, the right heart to sit under your word right now. That's not something that we can just turn on like a switch. It's something we are dependent upon your spirit to do that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would soften our hearts to respond in obedience to your word, that we would be transformed by it. Lord, none of that is something we can just do apart from you. We need your help, and so we ask for it now. We ask that you would open your word to us and open our hearts to your word. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 through 7, 4. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God moreover in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them 
For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Amen. This is God's holy word. When Nehemiah, as every passage of scripture, has something to teach us this morning. And we saw last week this idea of of fear being a theme Uh, in chapter 6. It closes out with that same theme. And so we'll see here this idea of fear. Right, the, the first point I want to highlight is the fear of judgment in verses 15 and 16. The fear of judgment. What we see is that the, the nations, they feared God's judgment when they witnessed his power. So the ability to complete the wall in 52 days revealed God's power, not only to the enemies, but also to the nations. Now, that fear did not lead them to honor the Lord. That fear only led them to lower their self-esteem. They recognized that they weren't capable of putting an end to it, that God was more powerful than them. And so they were humbled, but they were not repentant. They had not been led to repentance from this. And so instead of reverence for God, it seems that they only feared retaliation from God and his people. They feared judgment that was sure to come. If you're, you got your bulletin handy, look at the next section here, or just below, if you're following along the outline. In the Confession of Faith, we have the larger catechism, question 83. And we'll read the whole thing um, later on in the service, but notice the, the second half of this says, Actually, the last four lines there. On the contrary, sense of God's revenging wrath, horror of conscience, and a fearful expectation of judgment are to the wicked the beginning of their torments, which they shall endure after death. So we're talking about the communion in glory with Christ that the invisible church enjoys, the invisible church being the whole number of the elect, um, and so that, that, those benefits are listed in the first half of that answer, but then the second half says, on the contrary. 
And those who do not belong to the invisible church have this sense of God's revenging wrath, horror of conscience, and a fearful expectation of judgment. I would say this passage is an illustration of that. The fearful sense of judgment that, they, that awaits them. We know from Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus taught that narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life. And wide is the gate and easy the way that leads to destruction. So maybe we think, well, it's, it's true. They, they seem to have it, those who seem to have it easy, right? There's, it's, the, it's the majority. They're going through this wide gate and this easy way. But oftentimes under the surface, they're experiencing the greatest torments of conscience. If we understand that to be true, maybe we'll see things a little differently. We cannot judge by outward appearance. And scripture teaches us a different picture, gives us a different picture. And so this represents really God's answer to prayer. Look back in Nehemiah chapter 4. Go back a few chapters. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 4. Nehemiah is praying, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. This is what is happening here. The taunts of Nehemiah's enemies are being turned back upon them now. God has answered Nehemiah's prayer for judgment. And so fear of God's wrath can be transformed can be changed into rejoicing and reconciliation only through faith in God's Son. We learn this in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, according to Romans 1, 16. And so we should be praying for God's power to be displayed through the proclamation of the gospel. And some will only fear the coming judgment when that gospel is proclaimed. That will be the response of some, but those God draws to himself will receive eternal life. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the promise for the people of God in Philippians 4, 7. And so the only way to transform that fearful sense of judgment is to place your faith and your hope in the Savior, Jesus Christ. To experience peace that surpasses understanding. And so worldly fear is not only outside of the covenant community, but we see in this next section here, verses 17 through 19, that people within the covenant community had their motivations compromised as well by arrangements, their relationship with Tobiah. So that's your next point in the outline is the fear of Tobiah really just the fear of man. The, what we'll see here is that the nobles of Judah feared Tobiah's retaliation. That's an implication. It doesn't mention fear here. Right? In fact, it talks about their relationship, their arranged relationships with one another, whether it be through marriage or through some kind of economic or business arrangement. And they have a relationship with Tobiah. And so because of that relationship, they either feared retaliation should they go against him or they did everything they, they could to please him. He, become, he becomes their motivation for doing the things that they're doing. 
they favor Tobiah and they sabotage Nehemiah. And so they begin exchanging letters, it says in verse 17. They're exchanging letters all behind the scenes, just with one another, nobles and, and Tobiah writing back and forth. Clearly, they're collaborating, they're plotting, they're continuing that conniving work of the enemy. So the work on the walls is completed, but the opposition is undeterred. They continue to press forward in opposition. And the nobles are connected, it says, by oath. Well, we also know that it is through marriage. The oath there, the language of oath, is not like the vows that are taken in marriage. So it's combining two types of relationships that people had with Tobiah. One was through marriage ceremonies, right, through, through the, the uniting of, of children to one another, and so it brings them together as a, as a family. It, there was also this idea of there being business arrangements so that they were economically uh, benefiting by being associated with one another. And so their collaborations and plots are to their own advantage, right? The, this plotting is to reduce Nehemiah, to elevate Tobiah, and to benefit from it themselves. Again, these are the nobles in society. So what has caused them to compromise their loyalty to their country? It's the empty promise of power and wealth. It led them to, to talk up Tobiah whenever they're around Nehemiah. And notice all the good things that Tobiah has done for us. Hasn't, didn't he do that work so well? You know, they're, they're, they're putting these, these good thoughts about Tobiah into Nehemiah's ear. And then when Nehemiah responds, everything he says is taken back to Tobiah. Here's how Nehemiah understands you. And we know that Nehemiah was suspicious of Tobiah. He knew he was someone who was opposed to the kingdom work. So they prized wealth, they prized money and power over covenant faithfulness to God. Fear of man will always lead to compromise of God's mission. There's numerous examples we could point to. You probably have individuals in mind who are maybe celebrities either in their faith for their faith or celebrity pastors of some sort who make a shipwreck of their faith a public spectacle well the flip side of that is is right uh, having a fear of man is is living for man seeking approval at all costs you will lose your integrity when you do that. And so the gospel witness will suffer when money and power are more important to us than faithfulness. But notice what Nehemiah did. As you're reading this, oftentimes, you know, I think about, okay, what are, what are the things that we see here from this text that we can apply to our lives? Other times, it's, it's what we don't see that we expect to see. We see Nehemiah doing nothing, apparently. He doesn't take the time to respond to Tobiah's letters, which are attempting to make him afraid, continuing to do the same scare tactics that, that we talked about last week. He doesn't take the time to respond to the nobles at this point. He's rebuked the nobles before. 
he's already shown he's not afraid to do that. He doesn't have a fear of man. He'll stand up to his opposition, to their face, and he'll call them to account before the whole assembly of the city. He doesn't fear man. He also doesn't allow their tactics to become an all-consuming focus for him so that he'd be diverted from the, the call of God upon his life. See, part of the problem is reacting to everything, feeling the need to react to every bad comment or tweet. And I'm talking to myself here. Sensing the need to correct every wrong, so much of that is just wasted energy. If you spend all your time in endless social media debates, you won't have time for genuine conversation, real life training up of your children, honest conversation with your spouse, which may lead to true repentance. Jesus doesn't chase down every Pharisee in the New Testament. We don't see the Gospels filled with Jesus trying to correct every wrong. No, they come and they make accusations, and oftentimes his response to them is simply a brief, sharp critique, and he moves on. He doesn't allow their threats to completely occupy his time. He doesn't waste his time and energy on endless debates. And so we'll see here in the conclusion, concluding passage, verses 7 Uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, that the only way to eliminate these worldly fears is by cultivating a godly fear. It's the fear of God. What what I mean in, in this passage is that a proper reverence for God motivates the people of God to protect the centrality of worship. We see this theme really in every verse. First of all, Nehemiah appoints temple workers. Now, when the wall had been built, I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. So he's appointing workers that are in the temple to guard the city. The singers, choir members, I know your focus is is on singing, but I need you to watch the dung gate today. I need you to stand guard. He gives them watch. These temple workers are appointed to protect the city. Why would he do that? Uh, Maybe they were some of the nobles. Maybe they were the ones involved in some of the activities of communicating with, uh, with Tobiah. So he's trying to distract them, give them something to occupy their minds. I don't think that's the reason, though. I think it's because worship is not limited to a particular time and space. He's not saying only do your job in the temple, but your job relates to everywhere you go and everything you do. You're to honor God everywhere. Secondly, he appoints these governors, this middle management. He places them in charge, and he says that these men proved to be faithful. His brother, Anani, who we looked at in chapter 1, verse 2, um, we, say, we said that that's likely his brother because he's mentioned again here as his brother. And then Hananiah, very similar name. Some people have said it's just 
different ways of pronouncing the same name or it's the same individual with kind of a, a nickname, but it does seem to be two different people because in verse 3 it says, I said to them. So he is speaking there to plural individuals. But these, Hanani and Hananiah had proven themselves to be faithful. He acknowledges that the governor here, this governor of the castle, Hananiah, essentially the, the chief of police, he said that he is faithful and God-fearing. He's more faithful and God-fearing than many. Well, so that's something to emulate, right? He's setting these individuals up before the people to protect what he has established, right? this worship in the city. And he places God-fearing men over that work would be just as committed to the work as he was, as he is. And you see then in verse 3 this idea of, it's actually kind of confusing in the Hebrew, but we're going to go with the, the translation here from the ESV. I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. The potential alternative is that the gates were to be closed at... Um, like the afternoon time where they would, where they would take a nap. So when people are kind of tired and sleepy, close the gates because we're going to be vulnerable if we leave everything open. And so let's let's rest and then we'll go back to opening up everything. But, but the other alternative here is that instead of opening them at dawn, opening the gates and and basically opening up for commerce and and for the city to be active. Instead of opening it at dawn, wait until the sun is hot. Wait until, the, until noon, until the sun is at the top of the sky so that we can then have the entire morning undistracted. A time to bond as a community. A time to focus our hearts upon the Lord. I think that's potentially what's happening there. Mornings were to be reserved for the covenant community, not to, not to open it up for everyone to come in. And then in this last verse, verse 4, we see the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Again, here now we see that the inhabitants of the city, it's a small number. And yet, what does Nehemiah focus on? In this passage, what's he focused on doing? He's He's not saying, go out and recruit. Go out and get everyone to come and, and occupy these homes. I think there's a, a lesson for us. Pastors oftentimes are more distracted by the empty seats than equipping those who are filling the seats. We allow ourselves to be so focused on growing and the, new, the numbers that we actually don't do the work that God has very clearly called us to equip the saints for the work of ministry and so that's what's happening here poet the poet john dunn said give me O lord a fear of which i may not be afraid give me O lord a fear of which i may not be afraid there's a difference between worldly fear and godly fear you will fear everyone and everything if you do not fear god above all 
And so Nehemiah learned this fear. We know this from many examples in this book. We, he reveals this great boldness before opposition. And so he doesn't fear any man, yet he remained humble. He remained humble. He knew his place. 6.11, and back in chapter 6, verse 11, he said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple? On the one hand, he's saying, I'm not the kind of man who's going to run from opposition. I don't run for safety when I'm facing challenges. On the other hand, he's saying, who am I to enter into the temple? God hasn't called me to that. I'm not some, I'm not a priest. I haven't been assigned to the privilege of entering into the holy of holies. So on the one hand, he's saying, what, what kind of man do you think I am? I'm not one who runs, but I'm also not one who is presumptuous before God. He was bold, but he was humble. And so the cultivation of a godly fear enables us to overcome worldly fears. That's the goal here, to pursue the only fear that gives you a sense of rest and peace. It's a fear that displaces every other fear. It's a fear that keeps the main thing the main thing. The fear of God protects worship. It keeps it central to all of life. The fear of God is what opens our hearts to the love of God. It's because of God's love that he sent his son who prayed, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's Jesus' prayer in John 17, 24. On the night he was betrayed, he desires that they would see, that his people would see his glory. That would be our goal. That's the goal of gathering together. That's the goal of worship, is to see God's glory. It's to be so enamored by that glory that all the other distractions disappear. The influence of opposition is contained where the centrality of worship is maintained. The influence of opposition is contained where the centrality of worship is maintained. And so fear can motivate us to turn away from God and to seek relief from worldly gain But someone who is God-fearing is motivated by magnifying the person and work of Christ. That becomes their passion. So do you fear God's judgment? Recognize that God offers you peace and life through his son. Do you fear man? Well, cultivate a fear of God that would push out every other fear. And if you're easily distracted, magnify your understanding of Christ. Those who are faithful and God-fearing will hear their Savior say, Well done. Enter into the glory that I have prepared for you. That's our hope. And so let's give him praise and thanks for giving us that hope. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder from Nehemiah of why we gather.
it is easy for us to be distracted. It's easy for us to be worried about various levels of opposition that we face, whether it be from our neighbors, from our civil authorities, or even from other religious leaders who stand opposed to the way in which we seek to honor you in worship. Much of that opposition has has been exposed in these last years where it's no longer subtle, but very, very obvious and in your face. And Lord, it would be so easy for us to just occupy all of our time and all of our attention on trying to eliminate each distraction, trying to prepare ourselves for every possible opposition that we might face. But Lord, the centrality of worship doesn't allow us the freedom and the, and, the, and the room to divide our hearts in such a way. We want to be united in worship. We want to be united in our goal of worshiping you and making that central, not only to our activities here at the church, but also all of life as we enter into our places of work, as we spend time with our families, as we spend time in our communities with our neighbors, Lord, may all of that be a reflection of what you have called us to as as your saints. And so, Lord, as we gather together, we pray that we are equipped for the work, that we would prioritize rightly the centrality of worship and the place in which you have called us, Lord, to gather and then to go out in confidence. To go out in confidence to face every opposition, but to do so humbly, recognizing our dependence upon Christ. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.